This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Ayn Rand and Christianity. One of the heroes of some Republican conservatives and of radio TV hosts such as Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh is philosopher, novelist, and fervent anti-communist Ayn Rand. She is often cited at Tea Party rallies and other such gatherings as well. Congressman Paul Ryan and also Congressman Ron Paul cite Rand as one of their personal heroes and a reason why they got involved in politics. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan was a close associate of Ayn Rand. Although she d- died in 1982, her influence has grown and today is more pervasive perhaps than ever. Well, how should we think about her? Do her ideas mesh with biblical Christianity? Ayn Rand is the subject of this first perspective. Her name is a bit unusual. Her first name, Ayn, is spelled A-Y-N, and Rand, R-A-N-D, is how you spell her second name. Many of you perhaps are not familiar with her, but her ideas and some of her philosophy, which I want to summarize, is very important in understanding some conservative ideologues and some TV and radio TV hosts. First, a summary of her salient ideas. She named her philosophy objectivism, describing its essence as, quote, the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute, close that quote. As her philosophy developed, she stated that in terms of metaphysics, she was an atheist and stood opposed to anything she deemed mystical or supernatural, including all forms of religion. In terms of epistemology, she argued that all knowledge is based on sense perception, what we see, hear, feel, etc., and reason is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by man's senses. That's a quote. As regards ethics, Rand maintained that rational egoism, a rational self-interest, was the guiding moral principle of her approach to life. The individual exists, she wrote, for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself. Egoism, she said, is the virtue of selfishness. Politically, she argued strongly for individual rights and considered laissez-faire capitalism in its purest form as the only moral social system because it was the only one that guarded property rights. She fiercely opposed all forms of collectivism, including communism, socialism, fascism, and any form of the welfare state. Limited government best fit her rigid requirements. Arguably, her greatest written work was a novel entitled Atlas Shrugged, published in 1957. Rand detailed the theme of the novel as, quote, the role of the mind in man's existence and as a corollary, 
the demonstration of a new moral philosophy, the morality of rational self-interest. Close that quote. The novel's plot, again, the novel's entitled Atlas Shrugged, the novel's plot involves a dystopian United States in which the most creative industrialists, scientists, and artists go on strike and retreat to a mountainous hideaway where they build an independent, free economy. The novel's hero is a man named John Galt, who leads the strike in his effort to build a free society. To drive home her vision of a free, self-interested society she hoped to see, she has Galt replace the cross with a dollar sign. For Ayn Rand, without a rational and productive society would collapse. In other words, there is no God, no absolute ethical standard, only rational, creative-thinking humans who are self-centered, selfish, and thoroughly non-altruistic. Now, this is a very brief summary of her ideas and a very brief summary of her famous novel. But we need to ask a question as Christians. With a biblical worldview, how should we evaluate Ayn Rand? Several key thoughts. Number one, as a devout atheist, Ayn Rand argued that man is indeed the measure of all things, to borrow a phrase from the Renaissance. She argued, quote, that the concept of man as a noble being, with his own happiness, as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute, close quote. But the Bible makes it clear that man is not the measure. Man is not the center of all things. God is. God, therefore, as creator and sovereign, calls his creatures and his children by faith in his Son to a life of stewardship and charity informed by love. The life of the believer is a life of self-sacrifice and generosity. For Ayn Rand, such virtues so central to the Christian worldview are actually vices. Number two, Ayn Rand actually posits a complete reversal of biblical norms and values. Scott Ryan, whose book on Rand is most helpful, argues that her objectivism is, quote, a philosophically totalitarian personality cult that allowed Rand to exercise personal power over her unwitting victims, close quote. This is how she lived, including how she manipulated her husband and even justified an adulterous affair with his permission. Thirdly, and perhaps fundamentally, Ayn Rand was demonstrably anti-Christian. As an atheist, she wanted to be known as, quote, the greatest enemy of religion, close quote. The idea of God to her was degrading to man. And because there's no God, humans have absolutely no ethical obligation to other human beings, she argued. She once said that the world was, quote, perishing from an orgy of self-sacrifice. Her trinity was I, me, and mine. She exalted the idolatry of self and selfishness, an abhorrent proposition that is, in fact, the very antithesis of genuine biblical Christianity. It is for these reasons that those in the Republican Party, those conservative TV and radio talk show hosts that exalt the ideas of Ayn Rand should be ashamed of themselves, in my judgment. 
those in the Tea Party movement who hold up signs, who is John Galt, as many have done, are promoting a worldview that is actually farther from biblical Christianity than Karl Marx's utopian vision of communism. The name of Ayn Rand and Jesus Christ should never be used in the same sentence. Ayn Rand does not offer a vision of what America could become. She offers a recipe instead for the collapse of our way of life and our values. Conservative Christians should stay as far away from Ayn Rand as possible. She and her worldview have nothing to offer us. The focal point of what we believe is not a novel like Atlas Shrugged. It's the Bible. Now, that does not mean we cannot read Ayn Rand and we cannot engage her ideas. But if you want to adopt her worldview, stay as far away from it as you can. She represents the very antithesis of genuine biblical Christianity. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about teachers in American public education. In 2008, as he was beginning his run for the presidency, Barack Obama said, quote, that the single most important factor in determining student achievement is not the color of student's skin or where they come from. It's not who their parents are or how much money they have. It's who their teacher is, close that quote. Few would disagree with that statement. In fact, for most of us, we can remember that it was often a teacher that had the greatest impact in our personal or professional development or in major decisions we've made. For me, that I got involved in higher education was due to two teachers who deeply influenced me. For these reasons, I found Joel Klein's recent essay in The Atlantic to be timely and much needed. Klein was the chancellor of the New York City public school system for eight years. He has much to say about recalcitrant teachers, unions, and mediocre teachers in the profession. In my view, his essay is of profound importance, and there are therefore several salient points that I want to make to summarize and to elucidate upon in this perspective, in our program Issues in Perspective. Actually, as I try to summarize what he argued, there are six major points I want to try to make, and I'm drawing much of this from this very important article, again, written by Joel Klein, who was the chancellor of the New York City public school system for eight years. It's in the current issue of The Atlantic. Point number one. Klein argues politicians, especially Democratic politicians, generally do what teachers' unions want and the unions are very clear what they want. They want, first, happy members, so that those who run the unions get reelected, and second, more members so their power, money, and influence can grow. And teachers want lifetime job security, tenure, better pay regardless of performance, seniority pay, less work, short days, long holidays, lots of sick days, and the opportunity to retire early at, say, 55 with a good lifetime pension and full health benefits. Whether you work hard or don't, Klein argues, or in a hard-to-staff school in a poor community or not, you get paid the same, he goes on, unless you've been around for another year, in which case you get more. Arguably, Joel Klein is talking about New York City, 
but many public school teachers represented by the National Education Association or the American Federation of Teachers would fit this paradigm. Number two, Joel Klein offers some comments on tenure. For the teachers' union, tenure is merely due process. But as Klein shows in his article, firing a teacher for non-performance is virtually impossible. He details how in a system that he led that employs over 55,000 teachers, during his time as chancellor, they only fired six teachers for incompetence or non-performance over eight years. And he said the cost of taking these people through the litigation process, that tenure mandate, makes it almost impossible for you to get rid of an underperforming or incompetent teacher. Now, dear people, I don't know how you can look at that in any other way than say that is wrong. So Klein, who led a school system, a huge school system, says tenure does not serve the students who are the whole purpose of why public education exists in the first place. Number three, Klein also believes that the practice of calculating teachers' salaries must be challenged. For example, this is a quote from his article, Consider the consequences of the ubiquitous practice of paying the same for math and physical education teachers. Given the other job opportunities for talented mathematicians, but not for phys ed teachers, the same salary will attract many more of the latter, phys ed teachers, than the former, mathematics teachers. There is simply an acute shortage in some areas of qualified and competent math and science teachers. What if superintendents could compete using higher salaries for good math and good science teachers? Well, teacher union contracts prohibit this. So who suffers? The children. Number four, Klein also believes that in the United States, we must challenge the practice of having contracts for teachers that provide a mandatory salary increase each year, regardless of performance. Seniority, he argues, drives salary, not performance. And as he correctly shows, virtually no other industry assigns compensation just to length of service. Accountability and performance should determine salary, not simply years of service or number of graduate credits earned. Klein believes that we must challenge the entire compensation paradigm in the United States when it comes to teachers, especially those that have been reinforced, established, and stipulated by very lengthy teacher union contracts. Number five, Klein also believes that U.S. public education must challenge the lifetime benefits scheme that flows from so many union contracts. He writes, each dollar set aside to cover lifetime benefits of retired teachers, and in New York City, that means not only a pension, but health care, must be taken from what would otherwise be current operating dollars. And his argument is it makes it almost impossible to have balanced budgets and frugal budgetary processes when you're spending so much money to fund lifetime benefits for retired teachers. Somehow, he says, that system must be changed. Sixth and finally, 
Klein argues persuasively that accountability is desperately needed in public education. He writes, Accountability in most industries or professions usually takes two forms. First and foremost, markets impose accountability. If people do not choose the goods or services you're offering, you go out of business. Second, high-performing companies develop internal accountability requirements, keyed to market-based demands. Public education lacks both kinds of accountability. It is essentially a government-run monopoly. These are his words. Whether school does well or poorly, it will get the students it needs to stay in business because most children have no other choice. And that, in turn, creates, these are his words, no incentive for better performance, greater efficiency, or more innovation. All things as necessary as they are in any other field. Close that extended quote from Joel Klein's essay. Competition and choice are the two most needed aspects of any meaningful reform of public education, and I could not agree more. As Klein observes, time is running out. Without political leadership willing to take risks and build support for radical reform, and without a citizenry willing to insist on those reforms, our schools will continue to decline. Arguably, Joel Klein led one of the largest public school districts in the nation. But much of what he writes applies in one degree or another to many, if not most, of America's public schools. And the unions that serve public school teachers, primarily the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, are powerful and deeply entrenched in the political culture. The contracts that they have negotiated in many of the urban areas of our nation are not sustainable. Further, typically they do not reward performance. They only reward seniority. Our nation needs determined leadership to challenge this system and to change the system, for we are losing one of our most valuable resources, our children. This system that Joel Klein addresses in the lengthy issue of the current uh, Atlantic Monthly magazine is one of the most profound, disturbing, and yet hopeful articles I've read on public education because it offers a set of solutions. It offers a set of propositions that help us to understand and see and envision a way out of this mess. But dear people, as he concludes at the end of his lengthy essay, only determined, visionary, stubborn, forceful leadership will bring about this change. And dear people, currently, I do not see that kind of leadership, certainly not at the national level. In some of the states, we are starting to see that, like New Jersey or Wisconsin or Indiana. But it is a long road to change the public school system of this nation. Competition, accountability, and demand for excellence in performance must be part of the value system, indeed the core values, of a reformed public education system. Finally, in our third and last perspective on the program today, 
Briefly, I want to think with you about unfaithful men. Over the last few years, a surge of tragic stories about unfaithful men has inundated the media. Just a few examples. Arnold Schwarzenegger fathered a child with a longtime member of his household staff. Newt Gingrich led the impeachment against President Bill Clinton in the 1990s while carrying on an affair with a staff member. Tiger Woods had multiple mistresses. John Edwards fathered a child while his wife was dying of cancer to a woman that was part of his campaign. New York Congressman Anthony Weiner's bizarre social networking immoralities are difficult for us to fathom. One could go on. To one degree or another, each one of these men is being held accountable, some more severely than others. But what should our response be as Christians? Two thoughts. One, we must exhibit a measure of compassion, grace, and mercy to these men and many, many others. God can use each one of their indiscretions to break them of their hard-heartedness and sin and bring them to faith. Our prayer should be that God, who is rich in mercy, will do so. But secondly, such tragic lives must also drive us to Scripture. For example, Ephesians 5, 22-33 stipulates the operative terms that define a husband's role in marriage. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That kind of love is self-sacrificing, other-centered, and completely consuming. If a man truly loves his wife in that manner, there will be no infidelity, no loose talking, no adultery. If the standard is as Christ loved the church, can one imagine Jesus ever being unfaithful to his church? God is calling on men to do something radical in marriage, be utterly devoted and committed to the woman God gives. The challenge is that our culture no longer believes that, nor does it affirm it. We are thereby living with the consequences of abandoning this standard so clearly articulated in God's Word. God has designed the respective roles in marriage, and he empowers each partner to live according to those well-articulated standards. But when our culture, and unfortunately when our churches, no longer focus on these standards, unfaithfulness results. We are seeing increasing examples of the reluctance to hold men to the standard that God holds them. Until and unless American men seek the face of Almighty God, there will be ongoing and persistent failures. God, indeed, has given us over, to use that phrase we see in Romans chapter 1, to the natural consequences of the failure to follow his norm for marriage. With all the failures by men, these key, very publicly well-known leaders that I summarized earlier, and there are many more, we should not be surprised because they are not following God's standards, and our culture is not reinforcing God's standards. Why then are we surprised when we see so many men being unfaithful to their wives? God is simply giving us over to the natural consequences of not following his well-articulated standards. May God have mercy upon us because we need his grace, we need his mercy, and we need his love. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.